When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Just a very quick note before we dive in, if you've been hearing me talk about Camp GLP, our awesome gathering of human beings at the end of August, quick note, the final early bird discount for that, the $100 off discount expires in just a few days on June 15th. So if you want to grab your spot and make sure that you lock in the $100 off, make sure you do it by June 15th. Of course, we're happy to see you there with open arms no matter what. But if that matters to you, I just didn't want you to miss the cutoff date. You can learn more and grab your spot at goodlifeproject.com slash camp, or just go ahead and click the link in the show notes. On to our show. Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. This is not about becoming something or assuming an identity or rejecting anything else. This is about awareness and cultivating your own awareness and living in a certain way so that you actually can be happy. Today's guest, Sharon Salzberg, is a meditation and loving-kindness teacher who founded Insight a Meditation Center in Bari, Massachusetts, and also travels the world teaching people how to become aware and how to cultivate loving-kindness and a whole bunch of other stuff. She's also recently partnered with Dan Harris to help bring the world this really interesting app called 10% Happier. And Dan, by the way, is also, if you recognize his name and that name, the author of a book of the same name. And today's conversation really dives into Sharon's personal journey, her introduction from uh, growing up in New York City and having a very troubled childhood to heading off to India and thinking she was going to live there for the rest of her life, but then being sent back here to plot a different course. And also, we really explore this thing called loving kindness and what it is and what it isn't and where it begins and why sometimes we don't want to actually go there. So wide-ranging, enjoyable, and I think really valuable conversation. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. You grew up in the city or? I grew up in Washington Heights. Ah, so a local. Very in the city, yes. <laughs> well, that neighborhood has changed dramatically, yeah. Yeah. especially over like the last 10 or 15 years. What kind of a kid were you? I'm curious. Uh, depressed. <laughs> ah, 
Right, because you're isolated. Right, your family went through a lot of sounds like yeah. disruption in early yeah. age. Can you talk to me about that? A little sure. Bit? My parents split up when I was four. Then I lived with my mother. She died when I was nine. Mm. I went to live with my father's parents. He had just disappeared. I hadn't seen him at all. And he returned when I was eleven, briefly, and by that time he was pretty severely mentally ill. And mm. he was home for maybe six weeks or something, and then he ended up in a psychiatric facility in some form of which he lived in for the rest of his life. So Yeah. Were you sort of acutely aware of what was going on or were you kind of shielded from it at that time? It was a mix. It was I knew of course what was going on, but nobody ever talked about it, you know. Uh, and so so of course I had like enormous feelings within that I, I couldn't validate in any way. And so my inner world and my outer world were very separate and I went to college when I was 16, being a product of the New York City public school system. Mm -hmm. I skipped a couple of grades. And when I was a sophomore, I took an Asian philosophy course, which was, I think, almost accidental in yeah. the ways those things are. And it was there when I heard about the Buddha's teaching and the Buddha talking in a very upfront way about suffering that that was the first enormous turning point because it was like, oh, it's not just me. Uh. You know, I don't have to feel so different, so aberrant, so alone. This is a part of life. This is a natural part of life. And and then I heard about the possibility of meditation in that course, you know, that there were things, practical, real things you could do with your mind that would help you be happier. And so I was going to college in Buffalo, New York, State University of New York at Buffalo. I looked around which, Buffalo. Which is a very gray, cold place. Yeah, also. it is very cold. I've been to Buffalo. So. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, when I looked around, I just didn't see any place to actually learn. Because um, uh, I, I wanted to know the how-to, you know. Yeah. And, so that course, that one course lit a fire. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. And by the way, I'm not slamming buffalo, which just happens to be <laughs> yeah. in the winter cold. No, 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 no. Place. I'm about to have a buffalo joke, um, <laughs> and every time I tell it to someone in the room from Buffalo, which was a fabulous university, um, that's not a joke. Yeah, it had an independent study program, and if you created a project that they liked, you could go anywhere in the world theoretically mm. for a year. And then come back and do your fun deal. So that's my Buffalo joke. Got it, it. Being Buffalo, many people went. Not that many people came back. Got it. Which <laughs> is true. But I created a project. I said, I want to go to India and study Buddhist meditation. And this was 1970, and education was kind of wild in those days, yeah. especially there. It was very forward-thinking school. And uh, they said yes. So I went off in the fall. It was like my junior year abroad. I went off to India with my student loans and my scholarship. And Did you have a real sense of like what you were actually going to do? No. Actually, I also I tell a story about maybe three or four days before I was leaving, Trungpa Rinpoche, who was a uh, great Tibetan Lama, of course. came to Buffalo. It was his first trip oh, no to kidding. the U.S. I don't know who <laughs> did his tour. But um, he didn't speak at my university. He spoke at another college there, and I went to see him. I was like, wow, you yeah. know, like a real Buddhist. And he gave a talk, and then they asked for a written question. So I wrote out the question. I'm about to leave for India in like three days. Can you tell me where to go to find a, a meditation teacher, a Buddhist meditation teacher? And he had this big pile of questions in front of him, and he like reached in and pulled up my question, and he read it out loud, and he said, I think you had perhaps best follow – the pretense of accident. And that was it. You remember those words. Oh, yeah, like, definitely. Oh. It was like no addresses, no yeah. handy monastery guidebook. Right. I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. That was my blessing. And it's exactly the way it happened. Huh. So you basically just got on a plane and... Uh, I was with a couple of people. I wasn't all alone. Yeah. I got on a plane to Europe. We went overland through Europe and... Oh, wow. Uh, you know... The Mideast, basically. Yeah. You know, Very different place at Iran, that time also. Afghanistan, Pakistan. Yeah, no bus and train. And, yeah, yeah. You know, it was really outrageous. So where was the first place you actually landed in India then? I like, went to Dharamsala because I heard the Dalai Lama right. there. I heard he was a Buddhist. <laughs> you know, right. so. You're like, okay, that's my starting point. Yeah. <laughs> so what, Was it what you expected? It was amazing, but it wasn't what I felt I needed in mm. that. There were, of course, great, great lamas and great meditation teachers, but it was one of those situations that somehow didn't quite work. Like, I'd go to the class and they'd say, oh, the translator's out of town for two weeks, so come back in two weeks. Mm. So I'd come back in two weeks and oh, the lama had to go to the dentist who happens to be at the other end of India, you know, so we don't know when he's coming back. 
So he'd wait and wait and wait. And um, it was while I was in Dharamsala, I actually was in a Tibetan restaurant, and I overheard a conversation about a yoga conference that was going to be happening in New Delhi. And I thought, I'll go there. Maybe I'll find a teacher there. So we went to New Delhi, and it was a really dispiriting experience, the low point of which was these yogis and swamis up on the stage pushing and shoving against each other to be the first to grab the mic to speak. And and it was just awful, you know. And then Dan Goleman, who at the time was a graduate student in psychology studying meditation, of course, it's decades before emotional intelligence, right. you know, but he was delivering a paper at that conference oh, at that in some conference. weird way. And oh, he gave funny. a talk. And he mentioned at the end of the talk that he was on his way to this town called Bodhgaya, which is where the descendant of the tree they say the Buddha was sitting under when he became enlightened was he was going to do this intensive 10-day meditation retreat, which was really – had like no cultural baggage. It was like the straight how-to stuff. He said Ramdas was also going to be sitting there as a meditator. And I thought, that's it. And it was it. Right. Was Ramdas Ramdas at that point? Yeah, yeah. He was already okay. Ramdas. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So you went to that, yeah, yeah. What, and what, it, like, what was the experience there? <laughs> uh, it was amazing. So Ramdas was there as as a student. Krishnadas was there as a student. Oh no, kidding! The whole crew. Uh, the whole crew. <laughs> Joseph Goldstein was there as a student. Oh, that's so you know? funny. Yeah. So it's like that was the my... inciting incident yeah. for a lot yeah. of the people in this country now. That's yeah. Right. Uh, Danny was there. You know, so it was this amazing gathering of people. The teacher was S. N. Goenka. He had just left mm. Burma. He barely begun teaching. It was extraordinary, you know, it was such an enormous sense of adventure. Yeah. Like, wow, you know, there's an inner world and you can access it and you can really learn all about who you are. And so it was a combination of this extraordinary community and this tremendous inner adventure. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, did you have a sense for, you said when you landed in Dharamsala, it wasn't what you needed. Did you have a sense for what you were actually seeking at that point or what you what you at least thought you needed? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I was looking for, it's almost like the mechanics, you know, like sit this way. It's like the nuts and bolts. The of nuts like, and bolts. Like, how do you do it? Yeah. How do you do it? And I mean, I think of that as a fantastic moment. Like, thank goodness, you know, like, because I, you know, I was in college or was, I'd gone to college very early is used to studying things, yeah. you know, and I could have been satisfied with that. Right. And so there was some like wild instinct in me that said, no, that's not enough. When you're there with also this group of stunning humans, everyone came from very different places then at that point. What was it like to sort of be moving through this experience with those humans? It was incredible. I mean, this was, you know, Krishnadas wasn't Krishnadas. He was still Jeffrey. Like Jeffrey, right. Yeah. You know, and... Uh, the kid from, uh, where did he go? Uh, Brandeis or something no, like that? No, he, he went I think to was, uh, another Sunni, or, Stony Brook, I think. Is that what it was? Yeah. I know he was like a yeah. basketball player and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. almost, I think, the front man for Blue Oyster Cult or something like yeah, that. that yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. Ramdas was the one who was sort of like the patriarch. He was older. He'd been to India before. He was already Ramdas. They yeah. still all had their you know, English names. and. And, you know, I think about that sometimes because he was like the patriarch and the elder and he was like 38, you know, right? because we were so young. Uh, it's amazing. What changed in you during that, in just that moment? Because it seems like that was a powerful moment. Yeah, everything changed. It was like from the moment I sat down, just felt there's truth here. Uh. There's truth here for me. It wasn't easy. And, there were, you know, I mean, I had a lot going on inside and, and yeah. it wasn't easy at all. But. I just knew, you know, there's a rightness here, there's truth here. Mm. And going also was fabulous in the orientation he gave or the foundation he laid. The first night, he's, he made a point of saying the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. This is not about becoming something or assuming an identity or rejecting anything else. This is about awareness and cultivating your own awareness and living in a certain way so that you actually can be happy. Yeah. So powerful, too. I sometimes wonder these days if it it is really about sort of, you know, like becoming that person on that path rather than, and, and I don't want to say that it's bad if that's what it's about, but the idea that, that rather than just like, can, can we equip ourselves with a set of tools that might allow us to live in some way mm -hmm. with more ease in the world? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From that initial experience, uh, was it your intention to go back and just finish your degree? Also, I'm curious. 
or was this like, did you, uh, when you were going in your mind, yeah. you're like, this is the start of something bigger. I did go back and finish my degree. Yeah. I was more than a year gone. Right. You know, it was like, I was a little tardy. And when I, when I came back and went back to Buffalo, I ended up getting two years of independent study credit. I wrote some humongous paper on Buddhism, <laughs> which they accepted for like in lieu of classwork. And, and I have no idea what that is right now. I'd love to find it again. Wouldn't that be interesting to It'd go back so and like, see, see that? Yeah. And I got two years of independent study credit. I went back to India. Hmm. And I finally came back in 1974. Right. What was it that you felt like you needed to do that you could get in India that you couldn't get by studying with teachers here? I'm curious. There were no teachers here. Uh, that's true, right, at that time. I that's, mean, that's not fair. There were, I mean, Trungpa Rinpoche was somewhere. Right. Suzuki Roshi was somewhere. There were no teachers in, in Burmese tradition here. And I had Tibetan teachers also at that point, you know, but I ended up, for the sake of my practice, really focusing for a while on Burmese yeah. lineage. You know, what was it that drew you to that lineage as opposed to if you had the exposure to the others? Because uh-huh. I know, I think that's one of the biggest sort of interesting pop culture assumptions about Buddhism these days also, because it is so much a part of at least American culture these days is that Buddhism is just Buddhism mm-hmm. rather than there are actually some very, there are different paths and different lineages that really have different mm-hmm. lenses. Yeah. I mean, in the beginning, I mean, they were both extraordinary and the, there were exemplars and, and teachers that were extraordinary. And it was an amazing time, you know, like you check into a hotel in Calcutta and Somebody like Dujan Rinpoche, who was one of the most eminent Tibetan lamas, happened to be staying in the same hotel. And you'd hear, oh, he's doing teachings in the dining room at 7 o'clock. You know? <laughs> it's like, it was amazing and very blessed in, in so many ways. And the thing is that I, you know, got really confused. And so I would sit to meditate, for example, and instead of doing either methodology, I would just think, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do this? Should I do that? Which one's better? Which one's faster? How will I get enlightened faster? Well, these people seem more enlightened than those people. Then I know these people better than I know those people. If I knew those people, these people. They keep a chart. Should I I do this? Should I do that? And finally, I said to myself, just do something. You know, it doesn't have to be a lifetime commitment, but you've got to get out of your head. You've got to actually put this into practice and and do something. And the Burmese tradition just seems simpler and Mm. quite direct and... That's what I did. Yeah. Man, there's a lesson in there also. <laughs> it's like we spend so much time in our head trying to like not wanting to, to make the mistake of taking the wrong path. That's right. That's right. And it's just I think there's something really powerful to be said about just creating momentum, you know, and then adjusting course if it's not, if That's for right. some reason you That's feel right. it's not right down the road. Yeah. I mean, I was so stuck and just at a standstill and I had to do something. Yeah. How much of it was, um, I'm curious for you the culture of the community surrounding that tradition along with the teachings? Because I know there's, you know, you got the teachings, but you've also got the teacher and you've got the community and they all play their roles. Mm-hmm. I think it was, pro- I mean, I, I have since, you know, had much closer relationships with Tibetan teachers and Tibetan communities, mm-hmm. but I think the strongest thing that drew me to the people doing Tibetan practice at the time was this tremendous sense of commitment, you know, Really, how generous have you been today? You know mm. how uh, how have you brought this into your life? What have you given up today mm. that you might have grabbed? You know how much renunciation did you practice today? You know in the Burmese, we were a tradition. We were more, uh, I think, focused on those immersion experiences in the retreats, at least for that time. And it was uh, that was attractive too because it was like you know it was like a, a completely modeled life you know there was a schedule it was there were bells they locked the gates you know it was like if you want to go and buy a cookie you got to climb over that gate you know it was like a big thing and you know there was somebody like goenka chanting or had other teachers too in that tradition who were incredible you know and and very important for me yeah curious about a couple of things there the idea of Everything being prescribed, I think, is something that we love the idea of. And at the same time, it almost seems counter to like sort of like mm-hmm. the fundamentals mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. what the practice is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's structure, you know, so we relate differently to structure. And it's it's meant to be a training period. It's not meant to be a prescription for life. Yeah. You know, it's not like you want to spend your life being silent necessarily or 
not making eye contact with people or not mm. reading anything. Unless you live in New York, in which case you never make eye contact with people. <laughs> I don't know. People smile at me all the time. <laughs> it's I, the beautiful pink shirt you're wearing. Thank no. <laughs> you. I don't know. It's because I, I do loving kindness meditation whenever I'm walking down yeah. the street in New York. So oh, I no think, kidding. I think, are they doing it too? <laughs> you know, <laughs> what's going on here? You know, so it's not meant to be like, oh, this is how you can live the rest of your life. But this is a way of letting it all go. And for me, because you can tell from that example I gave about the Tibetan and the Burmese, I have a certain kind of mind. So I'd wake up and I think, should I sit? Should I walk? Should I sit? Should I walk? And to have it decided for me was actually a great blessing. Yeah. Um, in In those days, you know, the structure really supported me. Yeah. You also, you mentioned the the sort of the intensive retreat nature of what you're doing. I think I know what you're talking about there, but for my benefit and for the benefit of those, can you take me into what you mean by that more? Yeah. I mean, it's just a certain structure. It's like an immersion experience where those retreats were not completely silent, but we had silent days and silent periods. And these days, I think even in that style, they are silent, but you wake up theoretically at some early hour of the morning and, uh, there's a schedule of sitting, med- uh, going in and have walking meditation, but IMS at the Insight Meditation Society, the center I co-founded, you'd have sitting meditation, walking meditation, some meals, mm. everything's in silence except for teacher contact. You know, there are times when you can ask questions or there are times of instruction, there are times where you meet with a teacher in a smaller group or individually, and you sit and you walk and you sit and you walk and you sit and you walk and you eat now and then. And then there's a, a lecture, a discourse at night. And then there's another walking, another sitting, you go to bed. Mm. So you're kind of held in this container of a structure, this tremendous group support, this tremendous peer pressure. We happen to be extremely nice. We're very, we're not militant. You know, like no one's going to like say, where are you? You slept late, you know, right. or you're taking a walk in the woods, a bad person. You know, it's not like that at all. But the structure exists to support you. Yeah. And it seems like it's also meant to push you. Yeah. So, I mean, what's the why there? What's behind that? Well, there are a couple of things. One is, in terms of a retreat, the thread that gives us the most results is continuity of practice, mm. where everything becomes a practice, whether you're drinking a cup of tea or you're getting dressed or you're sitting or you're walking. And so there's a huge amount of responsibility taken away from you. You're not cooking. You're not shopping. You're not doing your laundry. You're not, you know, you're being taken care of. And the food's great, by the way. Mm. <laughs> I was just there. And... uh you know, so you're held in this. The only thing your your job is cultivating awareness and love and, ca- and compassion. Mm. That's it. You know, for th- two days, three days, seven days, however long you're there. So that's an amazing thing. And then being pushed, it's like as long as it's in the right way. You know, so many people have ideas about what should happen when they meditate. And people say often to me if they meet me and they hear I teach meditation, they say, oh, I tried that once. I failed at it. Mm. And then – you know, maybe they describe, oh, I couldn't stop thinking. I couldn't make my mind blank. I couldn't have only beautiful thoughts. I couldn't keep the anxiety away or whatever. And we say you cannot fail at it, that that's actually impossible. Because the goal is not to have a certain thing happen or, or not happen. The goal is to relate differently to anything that is happening. You know, thoughts, feelings, sensations, whatever it is, pleasant, painful, neutral, we develop a relationship to all of that that's like open and present and non-judging and compassionate and so on. So you can't have the wrong experience. So as long as there's that understanding, then putting your heart into it and and not, you know, kind of giving up two and a half minutes into a sitting because you got a little bored or you got a little sleepy, you know, it's a tremendous experience. Yeah, so Susan Piver, who we both know, tells this story about how she was on a three-day retreat or a seven-day retreat, and pretty soon into it, she was just really, really bored. And she happened to be a huge fan of um, the movie The 40-Year-Old Version, oh, yeah. to the point where she'd watched it in million times and she knew every scene and every line in it. So she said she literally <laughs> replayed the entire movie from end to end <laughs> her head, and she was cracking up at the funny points, and people were looking at her like, what was going on? And she's like, you know what? It was still a good set. You know, she's like, this was – it was where I needed to be in that moment at that time, and it was it was okay. Yeah. 
you know, rather than just like beating herself up or saying, oh, that was terrible. I failed at everything, which is, I think we have these crazy set of, you know, false expectations that we layer onto us about what it's supposed to be. We do. Uh, we do. So from your journey, you spent a, a, a significant additional amount of time in India. When did you actually finally come back? 74. Okay. And when you came back, was it with the intention of turning around and teaching? I had one teacher, this woman named Deepama. And when I realized in 74 I had to leave and come back to the States, it was with the intention of getting a new visa, doing you know stuff I needed to do here, seeing some family, and turning right around and going back to India for the rest of my life. Ah, um, no kidding. But I went to Calcutta to see Deepama to get her blessing before I was leaving. And Joseph Goldstein, whom I'd met in my first retreat, had already come back, and he'd been back for about six months. And and when I went to see Deepama, she said to me, when you go back, you'll be teaching with Joseph. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. And she said, yes, you will. And I said, no, I won't. And then she said two things that were really amazing. One was, you really understand suffering. That's why you should teach. And I had had you know, this very traumatic childhood. And I think it was the first time I ever thought of it as sort of a value in some way, hmm. you know, especially for others. And, and then she said to me, you can do anything you want to do, which you're thinking you can't do it. That's going to stop you. And I left her. She lived in what we would call a tenement, like a little room up, you know, four flights of stairs. And I went down those stairs thinking, no, I won't. And then I thought, I'm coming right back. And then uh, I got back to the States and I did what I had to do. And uh, in the meantime, Trunk Rinpoche had just opened Naropa Institute. It was the first summer of Naropa, which is now Naropa University. And it was in Boulder. And it was this extraordinary gathering of people. And Ramdas had, he was there, and he had maybe a thousand people in his class. Mm. And he had these little subsections, like the chanting subsection that Krishnadas was leading and the meditation subsection that Joseph was leading. And, and our joke amongst this community of people who had gotten really close in India was that here we were back in the States, nowhere to go. Joseph was the only one with a job and an apartment, so we all went to <laughs> Boulder. So at one point, I think nine of us moved into his one-bedroom oh, okay. apartment. You know? <laughs> and if you know Joseph, he's like extremely meticulous. He really suffered. Uh, <laughs> until he tells this story, too. And he said he really suffered until he stopped thinking of it as his apartment. Ah, and then he was fine. We right. were just all living there. So this was the first summer session. It was about two weeks before the end. Jack Cornfield was living down the hall. Mm teaching his own class. And then Joseph was so popular, he was asked to stay on for the second summer session. So I stayed on too, and we were teaching that together. And uh, then we got invited to teach a one-month retreat, Joseph and I. And so we went and taught that. And then we got invited to teach like a two-week retreat, and Jack came along. You know, so it was like yeah. the invitations were coming not every moment, you know, in between we were sleeping on people's living room couches and right. we had nothing. And and then one day, I think in his own defense, because we were living in his house a lot, this guy said, his friend in, in California said, you know, I have a rental property down near Santa Cruz. Uh, why don't you go stay there? <laughs> so we did. And we opened it up as a retreat center where people could come and do their own retreats. And it had maybe two extra bedrooms, something like that. So somebody came through at one point and he said, why don't you open a real retreat center? You know, it would be like a sacred site in this country. It would be a place where the kind of energy that gets engendered when people come together for that purpose doesn't have to dissipate. And he said, I know the people who can help you. They're all in Massachusetts. Mm. So we turned around and we, we looked up and down the East Coast and uh, we finally found this place in Barron, Massachusetts. And it's like one day I woke up and I thought of what Deepa Ma had said and I thought she's right. Huh. You know, this is my life now. Yeah. And I go back or have gone back, but I don't live there anymore. I live here. Yeah. So it's interesting. It was less sort of like there was this moment. It, it was more this just progression where you just kind of realize, yeah, this is it. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't seen as a career in those days. Right. I mean, that's my other curiosity also, because it's like, you know, you're young and you're, you know, so you're less burdened. And, and But at the same time, you know, there's probably the voice in your head saying, like, what am I actually, like, how am I going to live? How am I going to pay for I mean, you you grew up in New York, too. So there's, like, that sensibility, even though. But I'm curious also, like, where, because 
you lost your mom really young and because mm-hmm. you, I don't know if you would say you lost your dad young, but he, mm-hmm. you know, how does that play? Because it's almost like you're alone in the world, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, making all these decisions on the one hand without their guidance and on the other hand, unburdened by their expectations. Mm-hmm. Like did, was that part of the sort of your experience? I guess, you know, I, I'm certainly I was unburdened by anyone's expectations yeah. at that point. And so I think compared to my other friends, yeah, you know, definitely. Because uh, it was really weird and aberrant in those days. I mean, yeah. it's so different now. I was signing books somewhere and somebody online came up to me and said, I'm a mindfulness coach. And I mm. thought, I don't know what that means. You know, mm. but there are a lot of people who say that. And then the second person said, I'm thinking of starting a second career in mindfulness. And the third person said, I'm getting a degree in mindfulness. And I thought, what world am I in, you know? So it was very different then. Of course, it was a very, very weird thing to do, yeah. it seemed. When, so when you actually made the decision to start a center, did you think, it's is it like the, if I build it, they will come? <laughs> kind of. It was a little more uncertain than that. Yeah. It was like... Our mantra for the first year was we can always close it. We always close the year. Because who knew? You know, it was right. like, yeah, because this was a very different time. Yeah, it was sort a of very like you have to step time. back. Yeah. And we couldn't even get a mortgage, actually. Three very brave people, kind people, personally co signed a loan because yeah. we couldn't get a mortgage. So they weren't that happy when we'd say we can always close in a year. But that's that's all we knew. We, could, we can always close in a year. Yeah. Do you remember the first moment you sort of stepped in there to yeah. teach your first? Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. This is our 40th anniversary year. So oh, wow. we're having a lot of. Uh, a lot of reminiscing. A lot of reminiscing, a yeah. lot of looking at old photos, a lot of conversations like that. Yeah. What was that first moment like? <laughs> well, I remember a lot of first moments. I remember the first moment of um, seeing the place. Yeah. And then practicing that we had no programming for the first month so we decided to sit ourselves mm. you know so practicing there and then an open house you know and then teaching which was like wow yeah but it was all you know everything was up to us it was a very pioneering effort it's the first center i've ever heard of that was begun in the west by westerners that didn't refer back to a singular asian teacher mm. who was either in asia or here you know, like every Zen center, and there weren't many, and every Tibetan center had right. like the the gurus. So we were kind of making everything up as we went along. Should we have Buddhas was one question. Ah, so where did you come on that? <laughs> yeah, we had, well, you know, the reason, I mean, of course, you know, we look at the Buddha as like this tremendous teacher and source of all this wisdom. And in fact, you know, especially, for example, with loving kindness practice, which I'm so associated with in the eyes of the world, uh, once somebody said to me, this is so incredible. When did you make it up? <laughs> and I said, well, really, I didn't make anything up, you know, not a thing. <laughs> right, right. You know, so that all calls for, yes, let's have Buddha statues everywhere. That's the point. You know, yeah. we didn't make it up. But on the other hand, here was like my first retreat, the first night, Goenka saying the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. This is not mm. about becoming a Buddhist. And I thought, here, you know, like, what's it going to look like? What's it going to mean? It looks like idol worship. It's too weird, you know. And, but we went back and forth and back and forth. And then the truth is that Jack Cornfield, who, when Joseph and I were in India, Jack had a sort of parallel life in Thailand, and mm. we didn't meet till Boulder. But when he was in the Peace Corps in Thailand, he'd done a lot of shopping, and he had an enormous number of Buddha statues in his mother's attic. In Maryland, and one day this U-Haul pulled up, and there were all these Buddhas. Said, okay, let's put Buddhas like around. decision made. Exactly. You know, so there's a lot like free. that. And they're free. Yeah, and they're here, you know. And then the um, the building was in Avishyad. It was run by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament, which is what it set hmm. up above the doorway, That's Fathers funny. of the Blessed Sacrament. And we got someone to get up on a very tall ladder and said, uh, could you please rearrange these letters? So it says something about us. And they came up with metta, M-E-T-T-A, which means loving kindness. Right. And that's still there. But we had a big debate. Why do we have a word nobody knows what it means? Maybe we should have a different word. You know? yeah. But it's still there. So somebody just, um, there must be an order you know, still somewhere, the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. Somebody got a photo of when it said Fathers of the Blessed right. Sacrament. And you could see how like, it became metta. That's too funny. Yeah. It's so interesting though, because even so, I in a past life also I owned a yoga studio in New York City and Hell's Kitchen, 
And there was this great yoga all over New York City. And I didn't want to just start another center. That came out of a sort of business background as a lawyer. And, and, and I, what I realized was that your average middle-aged sort of like lawyer or business professional wouldn't set foot in the studios that were around the city. So there was this really similar dance of how far, you know, like we want to preserve with the essence of the practice so that it really, it matters. And at the same time, you know, my goal was to create a place where it lowered barriers to participation and let people ease into mm -hmm. whatever depth of what was built around mm -hmm. it at their own place. So like when we started, we had no chanting at the end of any class. There was no oming. And then, you know, and we, there was no incense because I knew that a lot of women actually had migraine, scent triggered migraines. So we stripped a whole bunch of the the things out of it. But then over the years, more and more and more sort of started to come back in. And oh, that's then, interesting. Yeah. I, I think part of it was just my orientation, but I think also part of it was a lot of it just started to become much, just much more mainstream. Yeah. And people were just in general more comfortable with the idea. But when you did this, this was brand spanking new. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's very odd. And even now, you know, I think because there's so much outreach to, you know, like veterans or nah. – you know, all kinds of people. And I think, I don't know about that oming, and we don't know, but you know, yeah. like, you know, at some yoga centers, I don't know about that dancing Shiva, you know, like. Yeah. And it's really, I think there's always this sort of like dance between like how true am I to the tradition versus mm -hmm. I just like, I just know people start doing this, things are going to yeah. change no matter why they come to it. So yeah. let's just make it available yeah. as available. Yeah. I remember we opened. Back when the Village Voice was like the big paper in New York, there was like they wrote about us, and the, and I still remember the headline to this day was like "Yuppie Yoga comes to Manhattan," <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh, this sucks." And then that night, you know, the door flew open, and a whole bunch of people came in. They're like, "Is this where the Yuppie Yoga is? We've been looking for this place." And I was like, "Why? Well, yes, it is." <laughs> yeah. It's like whatever Welcome. it takes, yeah. Because like it's like you know, if it's like what you said earlier, like if you develop a practice of with consistency, it doesn't matter why you came to it. Mm -hmm. Things are going to start to change. change. Yeah. Yeah. So from there, did you at some point, was there a moment where you kind of said, this is becoming something real and significant? In the country, you mean? In, 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 in your center? Uh, yes. It took years, really. I mean, yeah. in the beginning, you know, so many of the people were like us. They'd been to India or they had a secret longing to go to right. India, you know. So they were kind of like in the club. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then... I think the first, well, then there were a lot of psychotherapists, you know, the, <laughs> the people interested in the mind, you right, know, who yeah, were the, the rebels sense. of the day, you know. And and then I think there was a wave of older people, people who were just retiring and were looking for a new lease on life, or mm. maybe they had really wanted their whole lives to explore these things and hadn't been able to. And And then, you know, there were waves of younger people. And then it, it happens often in waves. I was talking to a a scientist friend of mine, and he said, you know, the scientists are really getting into this. That's how you know it's really transplanting into this culture. And then I was talking to a friend of mine whose wife is an artist, and he said, you know, the artists are really getting into this. That's how you know it's really transplanting into the culture. And I said, well, you know what this other friend, this mutual friend said? It was like, but you could just see, you know, the spreading. Nah. One of the things you've you talked about two phrases around the the practice mindfulness and also meta or loving kindness. Mm -hmm. um, describe a bit what in your experience or like what do you mean by mindfulness and what do you mean by loving kindness? I'm curious how those play together. Mm -hmm. Well, as qualities, you know, they're very supportive of one another. They're very intertwined as methodologies that can be distinguished. So, mm -hmm. with mindfulness practice. The goal is to really see one's experience more clearly without so many distorting lenses, you know. So, for example, maybe you have the habit when something uncomfortable arises in your body to right away start projecting into the future, like what's it going to feel like in 10 minutes? What's it going to feel like tomorrow? What's it going to feel like next week? So not only do we have the actual experience in the moment, we have all that in additional anticipation, which mm -hmm. is miserable. And so we see that beginning to arise let go of it and come back to what's actually happening. So we start with centering the attention on the feeling of the breath and then move through the body and emotions and and so on. So it becomes this way of really developing a lot of insight and understanding about our experience because we're actually looking at our experience, you know, instead of being driven by the 
these old habits. Loving kindness practice is a different method where I sometimes call it a stretch, you know, where we realize that we tend to pay attention in a certain way and we consciously pay attention in a different way. So for example, if you're in the habit at the end of the day of looking back at yourself almost as though to evaluate yourself, like how did I do today? Mm. And if you're in the habit of pretty well only remembering the mistakes you made and what you didn't do quite right, which and what most you of us are, better, yeah. you stretch. And it's almost like asking yourself, anything good happened today? Any good within me? You know, so we do that through the silent repetition of certain phrases so that we're paying attention differently. Instead of castigating ourselves and blaming ourselves, we're wishing ourselves well. Another example is there are tons of people we encounter, we look right through. Mm. You know, they're objects to us. person who works behind the counter in the supermarket or maybe the homeless person. You know, and so the question becomes what happens when we look at them instead of through them? So this isn't like a, a need to like take them home with you or have them be your best friend. But what is that moment? We like kind of recognize the humanity of that person. And so we use the phrases to pay attention differently. So it actually it takes intentionality and it kind of makes our world bigger, more inclusive. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful. It's also, and it also speaks to how much we don't see. Yeah, yeah. You know, and how much more of the world there really is available to us. Yeah. Yeah, um, no, totally. Totally. Yeah. What's your sense of why we why we withdraw that way these days? Well, I don't know that it's just a these days problem. Yeah, you right. Know? True. Like, just yeah. cut those two words off the sentence, right? The human condition is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's disconnection. You know, yeah. we're we're profoundly disconnected from ourselves. We're disconnected from one another. And usually there's the in-group and the out-group. You know, and most people are in the out-group. We ourselves can be in the out-group to ourselves. But, I, you know, I often think about that person behind the counter and how we tend to be with them, where they really are. They're a function for us. They're not a person. And, you know, we're not necessarily in... Uh, I mean, I think a lot of social structures are broken down, so we're not necessarily anywhere with a strong sense of community much. Mm. You know, like that person behind the counter, maybe they would have been in my church or something, my synagogue. But Yeah, because a lot of that's kind of falling away these days. You don't have yeah. that other opportunity yeah. you have to see them as part of your community, as part yeah. of like, like they're you yeah. fundamentally. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder... Do you have a sense for how much sort of like what feels to me like the acceleration of the pace of life plays into that too? I think so. I mean, I have this friend Linda Stone who coined this phrase, continuous partial attention. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah. know who I've heard the yeah, phrase. Yeah, I never realized who coined it. Got it. You know, I met her afterwards because I was quoting her all oh, the cool. time. And she wrote <laughs> to me on Twitter and said, I hear you're quoting me all the time. <laughs> then we became friends. So continuous partial attention and which I think is so apt. And she yeah. lays it on fear of missing anything, you know, because there's so much. It's like you're on Twitter and you think, what about my email? And you know, email, what about Facebook? And what about this? What about that? And, you know? Yeah. yeah, it does feel to me like that's behind, you know, we're constantly so distracted that it pulls us away from seeing people for who they are and validating them. It's, <laughs> it's not validating, right? Because we're not, it's not our job or our, we don't have the ability to validate somebody else, like, but just actually owning the fact that they're mm -hmm. real and they're there. Mm-hmm. Can you take me more into loving kindness mm -hmm. practice? You talked about sort of a, a progression, and I know it starts with a reflection on you, which is sort of an interesting. I always look at that with this corollary with it. You know, like in, in yoga, there's ahimsa, you know, which a lot of people translate as nonviolence. But I think a lot of times we don't look at it first as nonviolence to, to ourselves. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. just kind of like immediately say, well, that's for other people. Mm -hmm. or towards other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it seems like, you know, that reflection and the, the first, what you call it, a phase of loving kindness meditation mm -hmm. is really, it's like, let's let's turn this on ourselves mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. Well, one way of seeing the practice of loving kindness is as a practice of generosity. It's like generosity of the spirit. And sometimes we look at material generosity just as a kind of teaching vehicle because mm -hmm. it's so much more concrete, right? So... It's said that the best kind of generosity comes from a sense of inner abundance. And it makes sense, right? Because even if you have a huge amount by external measures, if you have the internal feeling that you don't have enough, it's very hard to give. Mm. 
So, you know, we might give from lots of different motives, obligation or showing off or martyrdom. We feel we don't deserve to have anything, but the best kind of generosity comes from that sense of inner abundance. And so then, you know, generosity of the spirit, thanking somebody, being present with somebody, paying attention, having loving kindness for them, having compassion for them. If we feel depleted and overcome and we've got nothing going on inside, it's very hard to be giving or offering from a good place. It's yeah. very, very hard. So there is a big emphasis on loving kindness for oneself. It's like renewal. It's resilience. It's creating the wherewithal, that sense of inner resource, so that we can, in a much better way, be paying attention to others. And so it always struck me as odd, you know, that even in the traditional Buddhist teaching, you start with loving kindness for yourself. And I thought, mm. wow, that is... You know, surely it's all about self-denial and self-abnegation, but it's not. You know, it's about building this sense of resource. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. You know, if you're on empty, <laughs> you got yeah, not, exactly. nothing to give. And if you genuinely want to be of service, you got to have a well or else you end up completely gutted and you can't mm -hmm. serve anybody. Yeah, that's um, true. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I wonder sometimes if – we look at that part of the practice and say, well, let me do something to love myself up or like, yeah, as being a little too self-aggrandizing or self-serving. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, that's what yeah. stops us from wanting to go yeah. there on on a certain level. Oh, yeah. Tremendously, even practice itself. Like I often say, I think I ended one of my books with saying, isn't it ironic if somebody said to us, here's this thing you can do 20 minutes a day, really help your friend? We do it. But really help me? Oh, no, I don't have time. <laughs> You know, I can't do it. I couldn't possibly do it. You should see my to-do list. And that's so selfish. You know, I need to take care of everybody else. I can't spend 20 minutes, but you cannot run on empty forever. You just can't. And, you know, so it's not selfish. It's not It's not the same as being self-preoccupied or, yeah. or whatever. It's really important. Uh, it's like I love the airplane analogy where it's like, what are the instructions? Like if you're a parent, put the mask on you first. Yeah. Right? Because you're of no service to anyone else if you go out. Yeah, I, th I think there's there's layers of shame and all that stuff that just get sort of put upon us. I love what you shared earlier in our conversation, though, about the fact that you just mentioned that you know, before this you were walking down the street in New York City and you're looking at different people offering loving kindness. Is that just a regular – is that just the way – I mean, is that a deliberate practice for you at this point or is it just the way you are? <laughs> <laughs> it's a deliberate practice. Okay. Yeah, no, I. Because I'm uh, thinking, I don't do that, but I'd like to. <laughs> well, I do sit every day. I have like a formal meditation practice. And yeah. For four years, after I went to Burma in 1985. So I started practice in January 71, January 7th, 1971. Mm. I happened to be teaching at Lodro Rinsler's studio, oh, Mindful wonderful. with Novels, <laughs> that night. And I remembered and I. I said, hey, guess what? You know, this is my 45th anniversary of becoming a meditator. And I saw Lojo start to run out the door and I said, are you going to get me a cake? Which he was, you know. Like, <laughs> Sounds like Lojo. So, yeah. yeah. So it took a while, you know, before I went to Burma and did intensive loving kindness practice, like 14 years. But from 85 till 89, that was my entire practice. Whether I was sitting at home or I was on retreat, I just did loving kindness hmm. practice. And most people I know have some kind of awareness practice and some kind of loving kindness or compassion practice. And you just divide up the time in different ways. So these days, the way I divide up the time is my daily sitting is largely like a mindfulness practice. Mm -hmm. But I have this resolve to do loving kindness whenever I'm waiting and I count every mode of transportation as waiting. So mm -hmm. airplanes walking down the streets of New York and literally waiting, you know, in line in the grocery store, something like that. Yeah. Instead of fretting or getting peeved, you know, I do loving kindness. And it's very interesting. Uh, interesting in what way? Like, what is it? Well, for one thing, I find that all the same judgments might arise in my mind, but I cap it with a little loving kindness. Like, why are you wearing a jacket? It's so hot out. Be happy, <laughs> you know, something like that. Yeah, so it's like you can end it with a different energy. Yeah, yeah, and, but, but that's so interesting too. And I love the fact that that's you're not denying the fact that you're still a human being. Yeah, you're still yeah. like a people. There's still judgment. There's still this and that. It's like and not so much but but and you can then come back to this place, mm -hmm. which just leaves you reoriented. You know, yeah, it's not yeah. like you have to leave behind that essence of who you are. It's like you keep coming back to yeah. a place and a practice. Yeah. And over the time, I mean, 
just I think you live in the world differently when you yeah. do that. No, definitely, and that's why when you know if somebody's smiling coming in the other direction down the street and they smile at me, I think maybe they're doing it too. Uh-huh. You know? I, like, I don't know. Right? Wouldn't that be a nice assumption? Just like yeah. I'm going to assume that they're doing it too, yeah. and thank you. Yeah. <laughs> So you spend a good chunk of your life now, um, I mean, both at the center, but also traveling around the world, teaching and writing. And more recently, you become involved in, I guess, sort of a latest technological uh, <laughs> project that, and I'm curious about this. Will you tell me about it? <laughs> well, I love technology, yeah. personally. I mean, even though I, you know, teased about continuous partial yeah. attention and devices, I love technology. And one thing I've seen it really do is like sometimes people come to me in New York and they, you know, they say things like, uh, I'm just back briefly. I'm working in Rwanda. I have no spiritual community at all. Help me. You know, and it's not like here you can Google like, you know, Charlotte, North Carolina insight meditation, which I've done, you know, and there's a group. There may be a group there and there's yoga there now here, but you know, so often people are actually reliant on, on that other kind of community. And and help, and I think it's fantastic. And Dan Harris is a friend, and a very funny friend, you know, amusing friend. And Dan, for those who don't know, is the guy who had kind of a public meltdown as a mainstream news broadcaster and had a panic attack, and then found mindfulness as a way to sort of like find his way back to being okay in a really high stress job and scenario. And then wrote a book, which was a huge seller called 10% Happier. 10% right? Happier. Right. And not only mindfulness, but loving kindness, which right, irks him no end. <laughs> he was like the original cynic. And we have a big routine about this because, you know, he's like, oh God, not that, you know. Yeah. And uh, when his book came out and um, he was being interviewed and some of us were asked to do these little films, you know, right. videos that they were going to show him and he was going to respond in his interview. He's the one who told me, he, my first book was called Loving Kindness and he told me he used to read it on the New York City subway and he was so embarrassed to be seen reading a book called <laughs> Loving Kindness that he used to hide the cover. And then uh, just as his book was coming out, he started posting Loving Kindness meditations, you know, and, and I, so I said in this little video, I said, imagine my delight when I saw that Dan Harris was like posting loving kindness meditations. And so they showed him this video and he laughed right. and he said, it is the most annoying meditation in the world, but it works. Yeah. So what made you want to team up with him then? Well, I think, he, I mean, I love him. You yeah. know, he's a fantastic articulator of that point of view, you know, like don't try to snow me and, you know. This is a practice. This is not a, you know, a cult, right. a belief system. And it's revolutionary. The way he puts it is he's so sweet. He said, my wife thanks Sharon Salzberg every single day of our marriage because I'm so much less of a jerk. <laughs> you know, so I recorded this thing, this course for his app called 10% Nicer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least that's what we call it. Right. So, so you guys ended up collaborating on yeah. an app, yeah. a 10% Happier app, which I'm curious about because on the one hand... I have this love-hate relationship with technology, probably for a lot of similar reasons we've talked about. And I'm also curious about just the idea of appifying the practice and sort of like, you know, the potential pluses and minuses. I'm curious just what the conversation in your head is about that too. It's many levels, you know, like we often talk about it, like say Joseph and I, you know, it's a different world. And I went to India when I was 18 years old. I'd never even been to California before. Mm. I'd barely been on an airplane before. But my suffering was so acute that I was sort of driven to do something. And these days, you know, it's so much more accessible. You don't have to go to the other end of the world. and But you still need to be sincere in your motivation. And often that is derived from suffering, you know, for, for many people. Not always. Sometimes it's just a really big curiosity about life. You want to understand things more deeply, and, which is fine, you know. Um, but I think much more important than the delivery system is the quality of the training of the person who's teaching. Because as there's this push to have the practices be more and more and more widespread, you know, People maybe with much less experience in practice are also either being trained as teachers or calling themselves teachers. And I mean, I think somebody like Dan runs a tight ship. You know, there's a lot of quality control. The delivery system is one thing, you know, in that it's it's off this app. Right. But 
he's pretty rigorous, you know, and who he has yeah. on there. What's the risk of learning from somebody who has not been taught rigorously? I think it's a few things, and, and it won't necessarily happen because the, the sincerity sure. of your motivation will, you know, I think be a very, very strong factor. But one is what we talked about. You know, if somebody doesn't have a really thorough understanding that the goal is not to block thoughts or, you know, only have beautiful thoughts, mm -hmm. then their judgment and your maybe insane self-judgment are going to match, yeah. you know, and you're really going to go down. And... I think there's something, you know, we all face difficulty and you need to persevere. And there's something about the the depth of the experience of the instructor that kind of helps you keep going. Mm. And you feel, oh, yeah, you know, it's worth it, you know, even though it's not instantly gratifying. I mean, when we first opened the Insight Meditation Society, we received two letters that were remarkable for how they were addressed. One Instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, it was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. <laughs> and that's what we're trained for, right? It's got to happen instantly or it's not worth right. it. And the other, by the way, which was my favorite, instead of being addressed to the Insight Meditation Society, it was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation <laughs> Society. And I love that. You know, because there have been a lot of times, say, in my practice where I felt nothing was happening, mm. only for me to look back later and say, oh, look at that. Yeah. Something was happening. You know, and, and to have an instructor who knows it's okay if it doesn't happen instantly is really valuable. Yeah. I wonder, too, whether um, the part of the delivery you know, is being able to, when you're in that part of a practice where you're, you know, like your six months window and you just feel like there's just nothing happening, man, or my practice just... So part of it is somebody sort of like walking you through the practice, but how much of it is also the teachings that come along with it, where somewhere along those six months, you have a wonderful teacher who knows that in any six month window, that thought is going to pop up mm -hmm. and they drop that into what they say to yeah, let you yeah, know, like yeah. check in and say, yeah. you may be feeling this, yeah. something is happening. Yeah. Keep going. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, 10% happier they have, they have a whole cadre of very experienced coaches. Yeah. Before I became a part of it in terms of teaching on it, and when they just began, it was just got Joseph Goldstein. I actually registered for it. I bought it. Hmm. And they only asked for your first name, so I registered as Sharon. And and so somebody got in touch with me and said, may I ask, is this your first time meditating? So <laughs> I wrote and I said, well, no, actually, I've been meditating for a long time. And they said, oh, well, we have, you know, we have some experienced people if you have questions and, you know, I'll, you know, just be the the go-between and then we just kind of carried on together and then joseph told them who i was you know so that's too funny sort of blew the surprise but it yeah was, it was fun i think providing access to both the teaching and a teacher in some way just really be there yeah. to answer this question is so important what about the idea of creating community and the way that that intersects with technology i think it's it's a great potential of technology and yeah. I hope more and more people take advantage of that because it's it's usually important, whether it's people being able to respond to one another or hear and see the experiences of other people, whether it's through blogging or whatever, you know, they uh, whatever form they, they decide it's going to take. I think it's really, really important. And some places, uh, some centers, for example, will have a kind of buddy system. Mm. And I, in my personal life, you know, have... I have a group of friends, there are five of us total, this is one example, where this one friend said if he woke up in the morning and he turned right, he's at his computer. If he turns left, he's at his sitting cushion. And so we have a little support group where every day, once you've sat, and you don't have to say for how long, you don't have to divulge the degree of your concentration or anything, but once you've sat, you write an email to the other four and the subject line is always turned left. <laughs> And then if you want, you know, turn left. I was just in Ireland. Yeah. Turn left in Ireland, you know, turn left in Barry Mass or, you know, say anything. Yeah. And it's so interesting because any community brings up everything about human relationships and interactions. So I've had a sitting practice for decades, you know, and so I was always the first one to write. Mm. And then I get really paranoid. Oh, no, they think I'm showing off. They think I'm just like a goody goody. Maybe I'll wait. You know, I'll wait eight hours after I sat. Right. It's like, is there a delay somewhere? So, like, won't send it out for a certain right. time. 
you know, and as long as you can laugh at your own mind, yeah. then it's a great support. That's great. It's funny. I use, I see it every morning, and but I use an app as a timer. And and I'm tempted, I've been tempted sometimes to just go grab a kitchen timer or something like that. But in this weird way, I almost feel like it's part of my practice yeah. to look at my phone and not choose email. Yeah. And there are days where I do choose email. I mean, yeah. most of the time these days it's not, but it's in this weird way. I do feel like it's actually part of the practice to look at it and then choose to sit. And sometimes it's actually annoyingly difficult <laughs> to, <laughs> yeah. to not, you know, like give in to that, to that thing. You know, it's just like, I'll just scan really quickly and then I'll sit. But I want to be just super respectful of your time and come full circle here. I think it's really exciting what you're doing. It's, to sort of look at your journey from, hey, I'm getting on a plane, you know, to take a year, almost like this, and then building this incredible center and community and teaching around the world. And now becoming one of the people who's really leading, how do we actually take this with integrity mm-hmm. and leverage technology and flatten the world to a mm-hmm. certain extent mm-hmm. where people mm-hmm. don't have direct access to wonderful teachers like mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. can experience it. So if we come full circle, the name of this is Good Life Project. So if I offer that term out to you to live a good life, what comes up? Connection. Ethics. And clarity. I think it, you know those are beautiful ways to live, and I think they they're much more salient to our happiness than status or size of our apartment or whatever it is. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening. We love sharing real, unscripted conversations and ideas that matter. And if you enjoy that too, and if you enjoy what we're up to, I'd be so grateful if you would take just a few seconds and rate and review the podcast. It really helps us get the word out. You can actually do that now right from the podcast app on your phone if you have an iPhone. You just click on the reviews tab and take a few seconds and jam over there. And if you haven't yet subscribed while you're there, then make sure you hit the subscribe button while you're at it. And then you'll be sure to never miss out on any of our incredible guests or conversations or riffs. And For those of you, our awesome community who are on other platforms, any love that you might be able to offer sharing our message would just be so appreciated. Until next time, this is Jonathan Fields signing off for Good Life Project. This story is presented by Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA produced by ACAS Creative. 25 years ago, Invesco QQQ rethought the investing landscape by providing access to the NASDAQ's 100 most innovative companies all in one ETF. With Invesco QQQ, investors saw all the possibilities that innovation could deliver. Personally, I had a wake-up call in my 30s that led me to invest deeply in myself to unlock new possibilities. I walked away from a career as a lawyer, overhauled my lifestyle through mindset and exercise and nutrition, and completely reimagined my career. And it was unsettling at times, but that investment in my potential allowed me to live so much more creatively and with purpose and passion. Invesco is proud to sponsor the new Ways to Win podcast, hosted by longtime coaches and mentors Craig Robinson and John Calipari. So in Ways to Win, the coaches use their on-court wisdom to solve for off-court problems and help you find a winning formula for success. In this clip from the show, we'll hear Craig share his advice for weighing a decision to switch from investment banking to full-time coaching. Let's take a listen. The advice that I would give somebody who's weighing a decision that is less risky or more risky, I always tell them to work back from what they're wanting to accomplish right? What the reward is, what's at the end and work back and try and set yourself up to get to where you want to get to. Because sometimes taking a risk is the right thing to do to get something that you want. And what I try and counsel people to do is not be afraid to take risks. Because if you set yourself up properly with a good education, a great network of friends, and you've got family behind you, you can usually weather most storms if things don't work out the way you thought they'd work out. So listen to Ways to Win wherever you get your podcasts to get more wisdom from Craig. Nobody knows what's ahead, but one thing's for certain. You can access tomorrow's innovation today with Invesco QQQ ETF. Let's rethink possibility. So thank you for listening to this special story brought to you in partnership with Invesco QQQ and produced by ACAS Creative. 
There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more defined investments. The NASDAQ 100 index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit Investco.com for a prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully before investing. Investco is not affiliated with Acast Creative. Investco Distributors, Inc. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Need to stock up on any weather wardrobe staples? Check out American Giant for hoodies, jackets, sweats, and more pieces you can wear anywhere. All made right here in the USA. Go to American-Giant.com and use code ANYSTYLE24 for 20% off your order.